Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hi, I'm Helen. I'm Stephen. And this is the first New Statesman podcast of 2017. Uh, we're going to change our format up slightly to make it a bit snappier this year. But first of all, Stephen and I will be talking about foreign aid and why everyone suddenly hates it, our predictions for 2017, and what Len McCluskey's game plan is at Unite. Later on, Amelia Tate will be joining us to talk about the film that doesn't exist and the people who think it does, and we'll be answering your questions. Stephen, first of all, let's talk about the future. Because you had a really... I was reading your assessment of your 2016 predictions. You had a pretty good 2016. Trump accepted. Trump accepted and actually also Scotland. Uh, I got Scotland. You didn't think Labour would come third? I think Scotland was actually worse than Trump in a way. In The, the reasoning behind the Trump prediction held up well, right? Which was that America's increased diversity would inoculate against it. He couldn't win. And he couldn't win the popular he, vote could, he, and then it turned out he didn't need to win the popular vote. I don't think that absolves me because the point of the Electoral College from its creation has always been to strengthen the hand of white reactionary politics, essentially. So I should have been more alive to that possibility. But weirdly, I think that prediction held up better than the Scottish prediction did. And I had, at least I had more faith in my Trump prediction, whereas obviously with Sadiq, I did waver because I kept being like, what does Zach Goldsmith know than I don't? As it Nothing turned out. It turned out. Um, <laughs> but the Scotland one was interesting because it uh, and has interesting repercussions for this year because your calculation was essentially that there was a flaw on Labour's vote below which it would not go. And it turned out that that flaw, if the flaw does exist, was lower than you thought it was. This year, you've confidently predicted Corbyn to stay again unless only God or Corbyn can remove him once more. Yeah, pretty much. What um, else? Second, I guess, is probably the least interesting. Angela Merkel to remain as as chancellor one of the many weird things i think about european politics at the moment and the way britain sees it is the way that angela merkel a competent politician on the center right but a fairly orthodox center right politician has become this weird avatar of a culture war one because a lot of people seem to attribute some of the achievements of her left-wing coalition partner to her and secondly because of her decision to admit one million refugees 
And it means people are really keen to be like, oh, she's the Clinton, oh, she's the Remain. Actually, if Angela Merkel loses, it will be because the numbers are there for a coalition of two left-wing parties. Is this and the, the red, Greens. red, green? Red, red, green, yeah. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And also, I just think it's, it ignores the fact, and we were talking about this in our crossover podcast, um, David Runciman's piece about, you know, people wanting to take some risk, but still essentially thinking that there is a kind of, They don't want to live in Mogadishu, right? People don't want total anarchy and, and the end of government. They believe that the institutions are still quite strong. And actually, you know, what our Prime Minister is Theresa May, who is a totally conventional politician of the centre-right. Actually, I'd say the right-right. So there's a danger, I think, of over-interpreting from a couple of data points. Also, with Trump, if someone had said the candidate will be Hillary Clinton, the Democrats will have lost seats uh, every election for eight years other than the two presidential uh, cycles, people would have just gone, even at the height of of Clinton's post-Secretary of State popularity, they'd have gone, well, probably people will decide it's time for a change and the Republicans will get 51% of the vote. And as it happened, we then kind of sort of thought, oh, but Trump is so bad that this usual pattern won't apply, which is one of the reasons why I think the lesson from Trump doesn't necessarily show us why Corbyn should be considered the favourite. However, I think it is a corrective to the idea that when we talk about the Conservatives would be unelectable if it weren't for Corbyn, then actually the success of Trump does show that if people want to express themselves in the way we'd kind of expect them to anyway, uh, they will do it. The same, and the same with Brexit, right? We would always have expected a referendum on a European treaty to be, to be lost in a creditor nation. We would have expected Lisbon. In fact, Lisbon was lost in France. We would have, well, the European Constitution, aka Lisbon. Yeah, no, no, uh, no, don't. No one cares. And then your uh, final prediction, or maybe not your final prediction, but another prediction was also that Marine Le Pen would not win in in the French presidential election. Although I, you did expect it would be Fillon versus her in the, in the final round, right? I do think, I think this may be me repeating what we said on the. This is the Cambridge University's. Um, um, professors do a podcast called Talking Politics, yeah, which we guest starred on. We did a guest verse, but anyway, um, so yeah, so those are your predictions for the year. So Merkel to stay, Marine Le Pen not to win, and Corbyn only Corbyn can get rid of himself. Yeah. But that segues us neatly into topic number two that we're going to talk about today, which is Len McCluskey. So the Unite General Secretary is up for re-election. He's got a challenge on his right and one on his left, and he is doing what I think is a if you're being kind is clever and if you're not kind of dastardly thing of um, after saying I could never put a date on when Jeremy you know, would need to perform better by has gone I, I'm going to put a date on that right yeah. what is the date is it 2019 2019 he said oh you know if things haven't improved Jeremy and John aren't egomaniacs they would of course stand down for the good of the party now so I can't work out if so my instinct is and this is quite clever right he knows he sort of needs some votes from his right uh, for people who are effectively going to vote on a kind of trade unionist for trade union platform, then there are members of the every trade union who think that the role of their GenSec is to get a great deal for them, and they are not at all fussed about the Labour Party, and they just want them to keep their beak out. That is particularly acute for Len among trade union among trade unionists who represent workers in industries that Jeremy Corbyn is very publicly opposed to. So what he's done is go, look, I'm not this guy's thing. He and I, there's some gap between us. In the mirror, which is read by a lot of Unite members, and in terms of what you'd say the swing vote in this electorate is, it's probably reading the mirror. He's then effectively gone on Twitter and gone, oh, the mainstream media, aren't they awful? Well, this is the bit that which... I think is clever slash dastardly, because, and I actually sort of take exception to it from a journalist point of view, which is that he knows that there is a part of that electorate that is already primed to go, oh, the evil MSM, always making up stories about Angela Eagle's window. And it seems very cynical to show one face and one line to people and then to kind of win it's just politics isn't it well yeah I mean I'm not getting like overly upset about it in the sense that it is the right thing to do if you want to win that ele- 
election, but then to wink at your supporters and say, actually, you know, I've been terribly traduced. But it's not, it's a pattern that he has done before when he did an interview with us, with George. He named Blairite cabinet ministers that he wanted sacked, and then he came out afterwards and huffed and puffed and said, what a dreadful, terrible thing, how we terribly misrepresented him. So, you know, I just, where I object to it is because I think that in this environment, it is very hard to be a media organisation and actually people cashing in their chips by just attacking you when you know for things you actually haven't done wrong I think I, I feel quite strongly a strong reaction against that I think you know, bad journalism should be attacked actually but people reporting your words faithfully and then you then undercutting that by winking to your supporters is sharp practice the interesting thing about that approach though to come back to my recurring theme about how the difficulty for the left is it is just playing politics on a higher difficulty setting, is then that's the kind of thing Boris would do all the time when he wanted to criticise Cameron for a London audience, but not do it for... So he'd say something to the Standard, and then he'd say to the Telegraph or the, the Mail or vice versa, ho, 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 this couldn't possibly, right? But you can get away with that if you're on the right, because you have a much larger sympathetic ecosystem... Unite has one very sympathetic media ally in the mirror, largely because of the large number of adverts it places in the mirror. So it's an important corporate relationship on both sides. However, they don't have very many allies because of this tendency when Unite does an interview or when Unite briefs something to you to then you be angrily and loudly denounced on Twitter, which is not helpful for the rest of the trade union movement. I think there was a lot of a backlash against that pitch of Lem McCluskey playing chess, right, in in the Guardian interview, when he was sort of like, oh, I'm the kingmaker, because actually that puts a massive target sign on on your back and makes it you a very attractive target for the right i mean the interesting thing is my instinct is partly i I would never bet against len mccluskey as far as the internal politics of unite and its predecessor unions are concerned but one of the things i find interesting is one of those elections which would be really easy to predict if you could tell me with certainty what percentage of the vote ian allison his challenger from the left will get and that that is the thing i don't know to what extent the free movement stuff, of which there is an absolute consensus between Len McCluskey and his challenger on the right, Gerald Coyne, that it doesn't work for their members and it needs to be addressed and you need to have sharp border control, which in terms of the majority of Unite members is electorally absolutely the right place for them to be. Of course, with trade unions and indeed any voluntary organisation, the divide between the people who vote and the people who are members of your organisation is huge. You know, some of our lists will be nationwide customers. If any of you can name the people who got elected at the last AGM, right, I will personally drive to your house and bake you a cake. Can you drive? No. Okay, let's no, right. no, I mean, really, the, the promise, really, really this promise is unlikely to be honoured. It doesn't count if you Google it, by the way. But my point is, <laughs> is that... No, it's like student elections, yeah. right? And that the, 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 you're as a very small, highly motivated base. It is no way represented. So actually, looking at the demographics of the electorate or the selectorate is not really very helpful because ninety percent of those people are not going to turn out. But also, the the left right stuff doesn't necessarily apply in the way you think it is. So so Dave Ward, general secretary of the CWU. Uh, if there are Unite Press officers listening, I really don't care about your statement about how Len McCluskey actually always loved Jeremy. I don't believe you, and it just annoys me whenever you send send that statement, so don't do it. Uh, this is the, uh, I definitely didn't want Andy Burnham. I definitely Burnham. didn't want Andy Burnham. It's just like, I'll spin off it. Like, I mean, it's <laughs> one of those things where you just think, guys, this is not a good way to manage your stakeholders. But Dave Ward genuinely was into Jeremy right from the beginning, head of the CWU, lent him a lot of staff, etc., etc. But he got elected effectively on the coin ticket. He was widely respected 
noted for having put the hours in, having one for his members as, oh God, I can't remember what his title was before. It may have been one of the assistant GSs, I can't recall, I'm afraid. And he was just respected as having done a good job. And Billy Hayes, while being to his right, was seen as having been a bit too involved in the Labour Party. So there is definitely a path to victory for Gerald Coyne on a platform of trade unionists for trade unionists, effectively. Whether or not he can, he can, he himself is up to it, uh, I don't know. Unite has had a very good couple of months in terms of the actual business of being the trade union. They fought and won several key disputes over Christmas with BAA, or Virgin Atlantic. They had some good progress with their Argos talk. So there's not very much discontent with Len's actual day job at the moment. So that probably helps him. But there is this real risk that he ends up as no one's candidate. He's already attacked... Gerald Coyne is Ironically, being... a, a, a thing that Andy Burnham will... Yeah, there is... There is, there is <laughs> will sympathise There is with. a real risk of him ending up in the, the Burnham zone. The Burnham zone. Okay, enough yeah. enough Unite internal politics. Not that, you know, I imagine people aren't crying out for more. But I just want to quickly talk about um, International Aid because your first newsletter of the year was writing about this. There's a big Daily Mail front page which is very upset at the concept that we are literally giving money to poor people and that's what International Aid has turned out to be. I thought what was really interesting is that you mentioned that there have been several studies that essentially whatever you want to call it helicopter money or direct cash transfers or whatever just giving money to poor people is you know an efficient way to deliver aid because they know best what they need well yeah i mean particularly because and i'm going to talk in very broad uh, outlines now one of the mistakes i think a lot of people make is they want to read across from domestic welfare policy to foreign aid and in fact a great deal of poverty can just be fixed by giving people particularly women who tend to have the majority of, of care responsibilities still in most uh, European nations just giving them money. But there are, in terms of the poverty problems called in that you are attempting to deal with through welfare systems, there are other legacy issues, family breakdown, drug abuse, poor housing, etc, etc, which can't necessarily be fixed by just giving people money. Or in the case of housing benefit, for example, they can be, but it's a really ineffective way of fixing the problem that leads to you giving someone housing benefit. However, most of the problems of poverty among the bottom billion and the global south are actually just about a dearth of capital. So just giving people money allows people to set up businesses, to send their kids to school. And basically every study shows that direct cash transfers are a really effective way of giving aid. The reason why they have ballooned, to use the male's preferred adjective for aid spending, in the last five years is Andrew Mitchell, first Conservative Secretary of State for DFID, and someone who really gets these issues and really lives and breathes them, had done a lot of studies on it, and he made it his personal project to increase the amount of the 0.7% that was going towards going as direct cash transfers. The male, of course, last year was saying that the problem was we were giving too much money to middlemen. Now the problem is we're giving too much money to the poor. Of course, the real thing they want to do is it's a repeat of the Brexit movie with a lot of the same key players. The male, the conservative right, the taxpayers' alliance. Where at the moment It did feel a lot like they were getting the old band back together, right? We've won Brexit, that's our thing. Now we're going to pitch roll basically to abolish DFID and get overturned the 0.7% GDP and commitment. Then... And we're going to do this through a systematic campaign of saying, look at all these random things like this sort of Ethiopian girl band that they're spending it on and just picking and you know presenting those projects in the most, not just necessarily even distorted, but the most black and white way of saying you know how can you say this is value for money my it, question is do we need to reform how we do foreign aid is it like benefit the benefit system here where there is benefit fraud but it is such a tiny percentage that there is no way to feasibly reduce it without just scrapping the system together or are there big reforms that are actually needed to the way that we do development well i think to be honest in terms of the things i would change about development spending in this country they're mostly not about 
corruption issues, not least because, yeah, again, like it's, it's hard to get rid of it. Part of why things like, although people quite rightly dislike many of the other post-retirement uh, initiatives he's done, it's why uh, Tony Blair's African Governance Initiative, despite the Kagami element, is a good idea, right? If you have better governing institutions, it means your aid money is better spent. But actually, the things you would tweak about UK development spending is we still spend an awful lot of money on institutionalisation, orphanages, large-scale special schools, both institutions which we have now rightly decided in this country don't work, don't deliver for the people who use them, and are, are bad institutions. So we have this And provide weird, perverse incentives, provide right, perverse. for someone to send up basically a kind of baby farm yeah. and then just cream off money from so it. So the, the weird thing is, for, you have a situation where Bernardo's, for example, has not run orphanages in this country since 1970, and yet you'll see plenty of people, you know, like philanthropists when they die, they'll give X amount of money to Bernardo's somewhere which has gone, no, 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 we really don't want to do it. And they'll also give some money to an orphanage somewhere in the global south. And you're just like, well, that kind of thing is a problem. And, they, and the thing that the right will try and do with their attack on aid is they will use genuinely legitimate concerns in order to kind of get in this wider thing. But what they really want to do, exactly as you say, is pitch roll. The one good thing about the fact Brexit has happened is we do know how this movie ends. And we know that one of the problems was is the arguments and pro-Europeans had been making, the second they did any polling on them, Andrew Cooper, the you know, stronger in chief also just found out that most of the pro-European arguments that we'd just been casually using were really bad and people didn't like them. So we do have an opportunity to make sure that it doesn't end that way before. But they are seriously going to come for foreign aid. They're going to talk about how what they care about is value for money. Actually, they don't. It doesn't mean that, you know, people shouldn't try to get their own houses in order. But the mistake that I think a lot of people in the sector are making is they're going, oh, this is a great opportunity for us because they basically think that their charity is a more efficient use of taxpayers money than than others so you can go well don't give it to that you're right that charity is crap yeah. ours is great but actually the, there is no interest at all in identifying the kind of rubbish charities it's just using them as examples to paint the whole thing as a complete waste of money yeah I think that's a really interesting um, question and I agree with you I think it's going to you know you can see the, the sort of the juggernaut wheels starting to grind into and this is clearly the, you know, the new big project I would imagine this couldn't be happening without Priti Patel who is the current DFID secretary being at least aware that this was happening or actually you know signing off on it and I think that's a really interesting question of well, at any point will she say publicly that she thinks that her department should not exist and that we shouldn't keep the 0.7 aid target. And now we're joined by our tech writer, Amelia Tate, who had an extraordinary end of the year by publishing an article on December the 22nd, I think, which then became our most read piece of the year. Just millions of millions, like making it rain. Just explain the premise really briefly of what you wrote. Basically, there's lots of people on the internet that believe a movie exists that doesn't actually exist. There's no evidence anywhere that it was made. Um, it's allegedly called Shazam, and it stars the American comedian Sinbad. Apart from that, there's a few facts that people seem to have come up with that happened in the movie. But other than that, it's just sort of this community that are really trying to find evidence of it, and there isn't any anywhere. Is there kind of a patient zero for the existence of Shazam? 
Did some? Is it? Can you find originally um, someone saying it and then someone else agreeing with them? You know what? Them and it, That's it the creepy up. thing because I thought I could, and then the more I found it, there were independent pockets. In around two thousand and nine, there was like a Yahoo Answers thread, there was a tweet from Simbad himself, there was a Reddit post. So there were sort of independent people all coming up with this same movie, and then it really took off in two thousand and fifteen after Vice wrote an article about false memories, and people came together and shared that they had this memory, and then suddenly it went from three or four people to. So the plot of Shazam is is supposed to be what? Sinbad is a a genie? A genie, an incompetent genie who helps two children, a boy and a girl, whose mother has either died or left their father. And they want to help him find love, but instead I imagine they, you know, learn a lesson along the way. Now the interesting thing is there is, of course, a film starring Shaq, another bold pop star slash rap star slash not very good actor of the early 90s called... Kazam. Kazam, yes. which is about a genie who helped a group of kids. The but inter- it makes people really angry, doesn't it, if you go, on oh, you're just thinking about Kazam. And so the interesting theory uh, than, than both Anna Leskovich, our culture writer, and Adam Serwa of The Atlantic both have, is that the reason why this exists is there are some people who just don't want to believe the genie is black. And so when this article, because obviously, although I'm very happy for you, I'm also seething with rage and envy. <laughs> I'm not even joking. Um... <laughs> When it started to go, like, properly viral and the US correspondent people who I follow started DMing, like, this piece is amazing. I was just like, yeah, it is. Listeners I'm can't so see it. I'm so happy for her. I'm doing a, a fixed grin. Um, and, uh, and, he, and he tweeted this, like, isn't this just, you know, white people? And then, like, black people started coming through. I uh, was like, I believe in this movie. And he was like, well, God, now I don't know what to think. But I think the false memory thing is fascinating because there was another really interesting case of that last year, Thomas Quick, who confessed to doing a load of murders, basically, and told them that he knew the sites where they were and you know, he was a serial killer. And then it turned out to just all be bobbins, right? He was just not. And actually, one of the things that's fascinating about this case is how unstable our memories are. You know, you can make people remember. A th- um, there's a famous experiment with a balloon, right? Where you you tell people this intricate story about a, a, you know a balloon escaping from their childhood, and after a while, they really they begin to remember it as if it happened to them. Can we do this with the U.S. presidential election? What to Donald Trump? Like we can just tell him that he lost enough times, and then he'll think just he lost. everyone. Just there are already more people who actively remember voting for Hillary Clinton than for Trump, right? Like, the ground has been laid, right? Just start claiming when people are like, Donald Trump won 303 electoral votes. Just go, no, he didn't. It's 290. Well, whatever it was. But that was the biggest takeaway I had from the piece. I suddenly stopped trusting history and everything that's ever happened because I realised just everything is made up and you can't trust anyone. You can't trust court. I sound crazy now. But I watched it in action. You put a little bit of info wars there. Just don't believe them, <laughs> well, man. Well, I, I just watched it in action in my timeline because, like Stephen says, it did blow up. So I had a lot of people, um, you know, messaging me or tweeting and saying, oh, I think I remember this. And then someone would reply to them and go, yeah, didn't that happen? And they'd suddenly be like, yes, I do remember it. It definitely happened. And I could see it in action. I, I worried a bit because I wondered if I'd legitimised it by writing an article about it. Um, and suddenly, if you Google it now, I come up and it looks it looks real. It looks more real than it ever did before. That, but then that also links, interestingly, to mass hysteria events where a mm. group of people are all convinced that the same thing has happened. And actually, you can kind of, through a collective force of will, decide everybody believes in this. The other interesting thing about memory that I read over the last couple of weeks is it's been this idea that some people don't make visual memories. Actually, Derek Parfit, the philosopher who's just died, was one of them. And he said it was as a result he had much less interest in his past selves. Because actually, if you say to, you know, if you say, well, you know, like, remember your childhood home, most people can sort of play it like a movie, like you can walk around it. 
And actually, a percentage of people don't have that. Dominic Lawson wrote about this in the weekend in the Sunday Times. He's one of the people who just doesn't have that, no visual memory whatsoever. And therefore, you only make memories through, you know, a stretch of conversation. People can't literally cannot visualize their partner when they're not there, which I think is really hard for people to understand but it, what your story How brought out to them me, at train stations well they recognize them when they <laughs> see them i mean there's another thing where you have face blindness where people literally can't remember faces and they just have to look for distinctive things that people wear but i think what your piece brought home to me is actually in order for our sense of self to be coherent we we have to believe that our memories are real but they they often are one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt until you tried it on same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. And now it's time for You Ask Us. One massive thing that a lot of people, more than half a dozen people have asked me is, could I always do the podcast Slightly Drunk in Future? Because I think a lot of people appreciated the rant. And I can't guarantee that I will drink a glass of wine before I do the podcast in future because we'd record this in the middle of the day and that's not really appropriate in January. I think next guest we should feed them and liquor them up a bit more beforehand because then they'll be more fighty. Okay, that's cool. But I'm definitely, what I am going to do, which I think is important, and I think maybe you should do too, is when we feel really passionate about something, we should rant a bit. I'm always aware of being on the left and particularly being a woman. You know, you come in passion and people hear you know shrew so i try and be quite chill but no i care about stuff Stephen. i care about the children they're our future you try and be chill i try and be trill because people think i might be shrill okay that's where that was Um, going but yeah one thing i did want to talk to you about uh rogue one rogue one how was it for you i thought it was very good i think well the, the interesting thing about the prequels sorry the new star wars films is that in terms of rating them the space which used to be quite empty which was not as good as empire strikes back significantly better than the prequels which basically just used to be like well which is better new hope or return of the jedi is now quite crowded so i would say it's definitely in that second tier of good star wars films right about as good as a new hope and return of the jedi and force awakens i don't think it was as good as force awakens and i think when you read a bit about the production of it you kind of get to understand that so they did a lot of reshoots with a different director and from what i hear i think the character of Jyn Erso was supposed to be a lot more moody and then they stripped that back and actually she ends up being quite bland equally well they decided not to have vader as the main body because they kind of wanted to make a star wars film without jedis I don't in know it what you thought but i actually thought that darth vader was the worst part of rogue one no, I thought... By the um, way, spoilers, obviously, but it's been out for a month. Yeah, so, so primary get over it. Director Krennic's flappy cloak was the worst part. When he arrives on that planet at the start, and all I could think of is that guy in Watchmen, you know, the one who gets killed because he gets his flappy cloak stuck in a revolving door on the way out of a bank robbery and gets shot to death. That's what I thought about Director Krennic. I thought, you need a stiffer fabric, my man, if you're going to wander around that shuttle. But that, I thought, was a bit of an issue with it, was actually the characters you didn't care about that much. It felt very Disney, in that while I was watching it, I enjoyed it. It didn't drag in any places. There weren't things that that were wrong with it. The basic premise about the fact that you can't upload a file over Wi-Fi despite you having lightspeed travel is an issue, but that is a kind of Star Wars trope of terrible technology, I guess, so I was willing to give that a pass. The big bet that Force Awakens makes 
with itself, right? Is the plot is effectively a retread of the classic Star Wars plot, but we're going to invest a lot in having really compelling central characters. And the hope and excitement of episode eight and nine, assuming, of course, that Trump hasn't destroyed us all by then, is that those characters will get to have more exciting adventures now that we are sold on them and they are exciting. I think the, the problem with Rogue One was, other than um, than Baze and Chiru, the cool Southeast Asians, who I can't work out if they were meant to have an implied gay relationship or if I was just reading... Yeah, I, well, reading I think they were certainly reading something and good wasn't there. friends. I think they were more than good friends. But other than them, a lot of the other characters felt like archetypes more than... Ca- I never really got... Their relationship in... was more interesting than Diego Luna and Felicity What's-Her-Faces. Felicity Jones's, yeah. I, I mean, wasn't it? I mean, you just I thought, I could definitely watch a spin-off series with these guys doing their thing. Got them, they liked each other. Perhaps other people didn't think they liked each other as much as I thought they liked each other. But... The weird thing about um, Cassian and Jin is we are continually being expected to believe that they have a deep emotional connection, despite the fact they've had three scenes together and no real chemistry with one another. Other thing that my other half forced me to do over Christmas, rewatch the prequels, or in the case of the third prequel, watch it for the first time, because I'd clearly cashed in my chips by that. I'd, am I not right in thinking that you made your wife do that? That's no, actually, this is not true. My wife made me do it. Ah, um, uh-huh. We'd rewatched the Star Wars films, and she was like, oh, we don't own the prequels. And I was just like, no, we don't. And she's just <laughs> like, we should. I was like, for completion, right? And she was like, maybe. Then we got them home, and she was like, actually, what I meant was I would like to watch them again. Wow. That's a, you, yeah, you can be married to someone, and then you find out something like that about them. So what did you think on a rewatch? Because my controversial opinion is actually, I think that... No, Phantom, don't say it. Please don't say Phantom it. Phantom Menace is actually the best of the prequels. It at least works as a film with a beginning, middle, and end. Um, I don't. What I don't understand is what note they gave to everyone on what their acting should be, because there's a lot of "My Lord, he has come in from uh, from without." You know, there's a lot of that. It's very weird. It's like a school play. Yeah. That's the sort of really bizarre thing about the prequels. The really weird thing is that you watch the third one. I've forgotten already which what it's called. Revenge of the Sith. There we go. And then you go straight into A New Hope, and in that time, like R two D two has lost the ability to fly and forgotten who Obi Wan Kenobi is. I mean, the kind of level of, of retconning is extremely well, high. Droids when you watch can it. go through mind wipes. Wow, I'll never be cool. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I think you have to tell yourself that something terrible happened to R2D2 and he just forgot what everything about his former self. But C3PO seems to remember all kinds of other random stuff. And there's just all sorts of just problems with the prequels. And so the Anakin Padme love story in the second film is a guy who met someone when he was eight, right, and is now at best in her her late thirties. Age wise, she must be in it. Ah, it, no, I get no. I think they're supposed to be 10 years between them. So I think he's supposed to be 8 and she's supposed to be like 16, 17 when they first meet. Is she a major... Okay, but anyway. I don't know how she got elected queen at the age of 16. That seems to be like a system that probably warrants further investigation because kind of fancy country that elects... (laughs) But the kind of fancy country that elects like virgin queens in their teens does tend to... Logically, I think, is the kind of country that would probably massacre them as a sacrifice to the sun god five years later. It's basically the story of an 8-year-old meeting his like au pair or childminder or like year one teacher and creeping on them consistently being like i just think of your skin you're so lovely (laughs) she's like yeah why not this seems like a good idea and then he kills her and he's weirdly angry with everyone else but himself for it he's very emo i think that is the kind of thing which i guess is now um in episode whatever we're on now seven is still being carried through by adam from girls right and that he's also extremely emo like emo young men are just a thing in star wars there just needs to be you know like a youth club they could go to or something like that emo works I just take the view that the best way to understand the prequels is maybe they're like the version of the story that Luke and Leia told to their kids. 
in order to bring this discussion back round to where it was, my parents-in-law swear that they saw an original version of The Empire Strikes Back with a different ending. And they've maintained this now for 30 years. Um, was Sinbad in it? <laughs> I will have to inquire about that. My father-in-law's riding high after having made us a bespoke only connect wall that went down very well on Twitter over Christmas. So uh, I think he can take that minor burn. Thank you for listening to the New Statesman podcast, produced by India Burke. Theme music is Devil by the Devil with the underscore orchestra, which is licensed by Creative Commons. Join us next week when we'll be discussing Jeremy Corbyn's reboot as a radical populist. And if you have any questions for us, get in touch via Twitter, Facebook or email.